Well, if you would like to turn back in your Bibles to page 390, 390. If you don't have a Bible yet and would like one, do put your hand up and one will come your way. Page 390, and it's Ezra chapter 3. And as Alex said, we are looking this evening at verses 8 to 13. Real religion is meeting with God. And these returned exiles are hungry for it. They've missed it. They've gathered together as as one man to Jerusalem. And these two landmark events follow the building of the altar and the laying of the foundation of a new temple. And it's all about meeting with God. They need to meet him. They need to have dealings with him. They need his presence. Meeting with God isn't just a sideline. It's it's vital. And it's such good news, isn't it, that we can. We can meet with the living God. You can. You can be reconciled to him, as we've been hearing. Your sin can be forgiven. You can be right with God. Last time we saw how that the altar points all the way to Jesus. You remember that John the Baptist famously said, Behold, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the sacrifice, the acceptable sacrifice. And all who truly repent of their sin and believe in him, they experience this Priceless blessing, the forgiveness of sins, eternal life. So they've built the altar, and they are already offering sacrifices on it, and now they begin on the foundations. The secret to the stability of any building is its foundations. And this temple is a picture of the building of the living temple of the church of Jesus Christ. In the New Testament, the house of God isn't a physical building. We need to make sure we don't get our categories mixed up on this. The house of God is not a physical building, but it's people, people who are described as the house of God and the church of the living God and the pillar and ground of the truth. And the foundation of this spiritual building is Jesus Christ himself. His church is built on him. And he is the foundation of our faith and of our hope. So I can ask you this evening, do you have this firm foundation in your life? Are you building your life on this solid rock? Are you enthusiastic tonight about your meeting place with the living God, which is through faith in Jesus. Now, through the years of exile in Babylon, these exiles had seen the emptiness, the futility of their idolatry. And now they want to restore the honor of the God of Israel. By the rivers of Babylon, they had sat down and wept as they remembered Zion. But now they begin to sing the songs of Zion again. Perhaps they used words as we find them, uh, for example, in Psalm 84. How lovely 
is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Even the sparrow finds a home and the swallow a nest for herself where she may lay her young at your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. These Psalms express a longing to meet with God, a longing for the presence of God, a longing for fellowship with God. And I wonder whether you identify with this longing. Is it there in your heart, in your life, a longing for true contact with God, true worship, real fellowship with him? Now, the temple in the Old Testament was the place where God especially revealed himself. It was the visible sign, if you like, of God dwelling among his people. And it was a powerful link to the people of God's mighty acts in the past. And it was a reminder every time they they went there that the story is not over yet. God's dealings with his people. Uh, And they were serious about God being among them they wanted the presence of God above all else and as they started building on this this new temple they had many reminders of the old one both buildings began to be built in the same month the second month of the year the cedar wood for both buildings was from Lebanon as uh, in the days of Solomon it was from Lebanon so it was now Some of the surrounding nations cooperated now, as they did then. And their leaders represented two lines of descent. There was Zerubbabel and Shealtiel. They were descendants of King David. And Josadak and Jeshua were from the priestly line of Aaron. Things were organized, you see. And there was attention to detail. And there was unity in the work. And there was enthusiasm for the work, they gathered together, they worked together, they worshipped together. So what we have here is a restoration of the worship of God, and the Holy Spirit is on the move. As we saw last time, he's been stirring them up. He stirred them to return to Jerusalem, and now he's stirring them to get involved in this great work, and he's stirring them to true worship. They They sing the same song as they sang when the first temple was built, giving thanks to the Lord for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. And now they add the words at the end, towards Israel. It's been a long time, you see, since they've had that awareness of being the true Israel of God. They've been in exile. It's been a long time since the glory days of Solomon's temple when Israel knew that they were the people of God and loved by God. And a lot of water has now gone under the bridge. There's been a lot of sin and a lot of idolatry and a lot of failure. But now, now they're singing that covenant song again. What a blessing to be singing it again. So let's Concentrate a little bit on worship this evening, and let's notice a few things about their worship. And the first is that it was orderly. Their worship was orderly. Biblical worship is. It's controlled by the word of God. 
So just as they built the altar and reinstated the burnt offerings, as it was written in the law of Moses, as this text emphasizes, so now they praised the Lord according to the instructions of David, the king of Israel. That's verse 10. The worship was conducted by the priests in their vestments, assisted by the Levites. And those vestments worn by the Uh, Jewish priests are described in the book of Exodus, chapter 28, in some detail. Now, God doesn't require those who lead worship uh, today to dress in ceremonial robes. Rather, in New Testament worship, we're instructed to clothe ourselves with compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness and patience, and not just in public worship, but in the whole of our lives. In Romans 12, the Apostle Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, who is your spiritual worship, your spiritual worship. You see how worship in the New Testament, there's a continuity between the old and the new, but there's also a significant difference. So here in Ezra chapter 3, the priests come forward with their trumpets and the Levites come forward with their cymbals and they sing praise responsively, responsively. And they give thanks to the Lord. You see, it's orderly. The way they do it is orderly. They are reforming, but they're taking the Bible as their guides. And that same principle does carry over to New Testament worship. In quite a lot of churches today, the word worship is usually used to mean an extended time of sung praise, a time of worship. And the worship leader is the person who leads that praise. And sometimes we hear people say that one church is great for worship, And another church maybe is great for teaching. Uh, But in the Bible, you know, worship touches the whole of life. And it should really describe certainly everything we do when we come together in church. Later in this book and in Nehemiah chapter 8, the reading of the Bible and the exposition of the Bible is a vital part of worship. And now, of course, we have the complete Bible, the complete canon of Scripture. And we know, don't we, now that Bible reading and preaching and prayer and baptism in the Lord's Supper and fellowship and giving, that these are all essential parts of the worship of God as well as the singing of God's praise. Listen to how worship is described in the epistle to the Hebrews and chapter 12. You have come to Mount Zion. You see, the imagery is still being used of Jerusalem. You have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable innumerable angels in festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus. We'll come to Jesus, aren't we? The mediator, the middleman, 
the representative of the new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than that of the blood of Abel. Worship is awesome, isn't it? It's an awesome thing. And every gathering of God's people on earth anticipates that day that the writer to Hebrews speaks of when the complete company of God's people gather together around the throne of God in a city where there's, well, there's no need of temple there. I want you to see, firstly then, that real worship, biblical worship, is orderly. But then, secondly, let's emphasize also that it is joyful, even exuberant. In verse 11, we have this great shout. All the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord. So you see, true worship isn't only disciplined, it's also Joyful. Psalm 47, verse 5 says, God has gone up with a shout, the Lord with the sound of a trumpet. Sing praises to God. Sing praises, for God is the king of all the earth. Sing praises with a psalm. And the whole book of Psalms is a, a kind of outpouring of, of praise to God, isn't it? Culminating in Psalm 150, which just pulsates with praise. Look it up when you get home. And now, as the foundations of this temple are, are dug, they also use a fragment from a very well-known psalm. God is good. God is good. For his steadfast love endures forever. That's what they're joyful about, that God is good, that his love never changes. And deliverance from exile, of course, was something to get excited about. When God delivers, delivers us from the bondage of our slavery to sin, that's something to get excited about, isn't it? And so there was loud music, and there was singing, and it was all directed to the Lord, because God is coming to meet his people. It's one of the things that happens when God comes to meet his people. And you'll notice that the, the they in verse 11, where it says they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, is the same they as we have in verse 7, where it says, so they gave money to the masons and the carpenters. And of course, it's the same uh, uh, group of people who came together in the seventh month, and they gathered as one man in Jerusalem. And when we think of what God has done for us in Christ, and what he has delivered us from, and what he has saved us for, there's a lot to be joyful about for believers. We should be distinguished, really, as men and women and young people, girls and boys who have joy, the joy of the Lord is our strength. And when it comes to praising God in our worship, then really we should be doing the very best we can do. Our, our hearts should be in it, shouldn't they? We shouldn't be kind of switched off and casual about praising God. And when it comes to singing, we should do our best, shouldn't we? Uh, and th the music that we use, well, it, it, it's not an end in itself, 
but it does help us to express our heartfelt praise. It's been said that music is like fire, a good servant, but a bad master. And uh, fire, well, fire is, is dangerous when it gets out of hand, but it's very useful when it serves a good purpose. And so music is like that. And our worship should be not dead, not dull, but alive and vibrant and a response to who God is and to what God has done and his covenant faithfulness so that people who come in amongst us can, can see that God has done something for us. God has done great things for us and we are glad of it. We rejoice in God's covenant faithfulness to us. These exiles knew, didn't they? They knew that God had been with them, that God had brought them back, that God had preserved them through those years of exile. That was big. That was miserable. And now it was joyful because they had been brought into, into liberty through the providence of God. They had returned safely uh, to their land and to their city and to this great work of rebuilding. And it was all to the grace of God. They know that they are debtors to the mercy of God. And if they were, then we are more. A debtor to mercy alone, of covenant mercy. I sing. Do you sing? Or do you abstain from the singing? Or do you really join in the singing because you want to give praise to God? So the, joy, the, the worship is orderly. And the worship is joyful. And then thirdly, we can say that the worship is powerful. It's powerful worship. Now, in some ways, it wasn't as glorious as it was in the days of Solomon's temple or the dedication of Solomon's temple. Then we're told about the worship that took place at the completion of the temple of Solomon. But here, as they give praise to God, there's not much more than a hole in the ground, is there? And some footings with building materials lying around. You sometimes pass a building site, don't you, on foot or in, in, in the It doesn't look very impressive. But for those who've sort of laid the foundations, it, it does mean something. And uh, it's, it's, it tells what's going to be there. They can look at that footprint and they can make deductions from it. When I was about eight years old, my parents had a house built in, in a village. And I remember as a, as a child going to this new house and just walking around the foundations and trying to imagine what the, what the finished house was going to look like. We had the architect's plans and so on. Well, here there's not much more than just this, these bare foundations. And of course, they didn't have the Ark of the Covenant. That was lost. And they didn't have the prospect of the glory cloud descending as it had done on Solomon's temple. And so there's no visible manifestation of the glory of God. And we may not have anything very much to go on like they didn't have very much to go on. But still the worship notice is 
It's powerful. It's real. The Apostle Paul warns Timothy about the godlessness of the last days. And he says one of, of the features of that godlessness will be peoples will be lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. That rings a few bells, doesn't it? Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Are you a real lover of God? Do you love him? Do you love coming together like this to worship him so that you wouldn't miss it for anything? And these people who love pleasure more than they love God, Paul says they have the appearance of godliness or the form of godliness, but they deny the power of it. That's a very serious thing, isn't it? To have a sort of fake godliness. They, they look like godly people, they act like godly people, but there's no real, there's no reality in it. There's no life in it. Paul doesn't say to Timothy that they limit godliness or limit the power of godliness. He says they deny it. Fake godliness, you know, is a denial. It's a denial of the true thing. It, it deceives people into thinking that there is no such thing as real godliness. There's no such thing as a genuinely changed life and a, a living relationship with God and genuine, heartfelt, God-glorifying worship. They think there's no such thing as that when they see fake godliness. It's a serious thing if we have a form of godliness, but we're denying the real power, the power that there is in real godliness. May God give to us all a dread of just a sham religion, formality, emptiness, the fake, which sends out the message that the things of God don't really count, don't really make a difference. They aren't real. May God make us real believers. Make that your prayer today. Make me, Lord, a real Christian. Whatever else I am or not, make me a real Christian, washed in the blood of the Redeemer. And when I come to worship, make me a real worshipper. May I worship in spirit and in truth. Because true worship, be assured of this, is in the power of the Holy Spirit. It's under his blessing, under his prompting. It's orderly, it's joyful, and it's powerful. And there's one other, one other thing that we can notice about worship from this passage, and that it is worship based on the mighty character and acts of God. As they praised God for the foundations, they focused especially on the character of God, didn't they? They praise God for who he is, and especially for his goodness and for his mercy. You see, their worship had content, and biblical worship does have content. It's not about mood. 
It's not about atmosphere. It's not about working something up from a human point of view that's going to impress people or, or people can just enjoy. It, it's, it's, it has real content. There's always great reason to praise God. And here the great reason to praise him is that God is good. Oh, that's a very simple statement. Um, and in English, of course, the word good can mean quite a lot of different things. We often use it in a rather bland sort of a way. But when the Bible says God is good, that's not bland. That's rich. That's multifaceted. In Genesis chapter 1, it describes God's great pleasure as the creator rejoices in what he has made. His creation reflects his goodness, his perfection. And all he looks at it all and he says at the end of it all, it's very good. He looks at what he has made. So when the Bible makes this grand declaration, as it does in many places, the Lord is good, it's not bland, it's rich. It's worthy of praise that he is good. Aren't you glad tonight that in all the ups and downs of your life and all the perplexities of it, that you can have this rock-solid assurance in your heart that whatever's going on in your life, the Lord is good. He's good in all his ways and wonderful works. He's, good. He's eternally good. And his love is steadfast. The Lord is good, he's a stronghold in the day of trouble, and his love is a steadfast love. This is the Hebrew word hesed, God's covenant loving kindness. And the psalm says it endures forever. And faith, living faith, is something that gets hold of this, gets hold of the character of God, gets hold of what God is like, that God is good, and that his loving kindness endures forever. You see, we live in such a, a constantly changing world, don't we? And we ourselves are fickle and unreliable and, and weak. And our love, even our love for God, blows hot and cold. But God's love isn't like that. God's love is unchangeable absolutely dependable. We live in a dangerous world. It's a perplexing world. We find it so from day to day and week to week. But we know, don't we, as believers, that God is too wise to err, too wise to make mistakes. He's too good to be unkind. And these exiles, they could see something of this as they looked back and as they laid the foundations of this temple and they praised God for it joyfully and powerfully. And in subjection to scripture, they praised God for the kind of God that the God of Israel is. Do you have this security and this desire to praise God for it? If your trust is in Christ, well, you do. And he will hold you fast. Verse 11 says that they sang this truth to one another. They sang responsively. If you want an example of responsive praise, you can just look for a moment at Psalm 136, 136 on page 520, if you want to look it up. But that's... Uh, 
a, a psalm in which every verse, the second part of the verse, contains the phrase, for his steadfast love endures forever. And the way they would worship would be by the worship leader would, um, would sing or say the first part of the verse, and then the, all the people would join in together, as we did a little bit earlier in our service. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. And then everybody would say, for his steadfast love endures forever. That's singing, that's singing responsive praise. That's responsive worship. And this psalm is an a, a, a excellent example of it. And it goes through various of the acts and wonders that God has done in creation and for his people Israel especially and rejoices. It's a psalm of rejoicing and of praise uh, for, for God's great acts. It's an extended meditation, if you like, on the goodness and mercy of God. And all the people were involved with it and in it as they joined in saying that his steadfast love endures forever. And worship, you know, true worship does explore it explores doctrine. It explores truth. It explores the character and the power and the greatness and the mighty acts of God and what he has done as proof that his steadfast love endures forever. And it's when we see these things, when we see that these things are always, always true about God, then we find reason to praise him, don't we? It's not just something that we work up. It's something that's based on truth, on doctrine, on what is true about the living God. And we can praise him from our hearts for it. And now we have this rather unexpected little passage about a mixture in the worship of God's people. You might hear from a distance a great cheer from a, a football crowd. But when you get closer to that crowd, you find out that actually there are, some of them are cheering, quite a lot of them are cheering. Those on the winning side are cheering. But there are others who are groaning, even crying perhaps. People do get worked up about football, don't they? Well, it was, it was like that in, in this crowd. The younger people actually were shouting joyfully but many of the older people, including some of the priests, were, were in tears. They were even, even wailing. And you might say, well, why was that? Well, the older people were looking back to glory days of the past. And a few of them perhaps remembered the glory of Solomon's temple. They certainly heard about it. And that temple had had the Ark of the Covenant. And it had the visible symbol of the presence of God. And God did come down in a visible way in the glory cloud at the completion of that temple. But now what are they looking at? A hole in the ground. The footings of a new one. How can this one ever be as glorious as the old one was? Even when it's finished, it's not going to be a patch on it, is it? And often in worship, there is a mixture. And in kingdom work, there is a mixture. There is joy and there is sadness. As Christians, we have joy in what God and Christ has done for us. At the same time, we have sadness that we fall so far short of what we should be as his followers. There is joy in building 
the church of Christ, every convert, every gospel opportunity, every teenager at a youth group, however rowdy they may be, is a, is a cause of, of, of joy. But then there's sadness because of the slowness of the work, because of the discouragements along the way. There's a mixture, isn't there? But it's an interesting question to ask, and I wonder whether you've been asking it. What response do you think was the mo most appropriate on this occasion? Was it the joyful shout of the younger people? Or was it the wailing of the older ones, the weeping of them? Well, which response do you think gave more glory to God? Well, I think if they'd really all of them got hold of the great thing that God was doing and that God had done in bringing them back from exile and giving them the opportunity for a new start and opened the door through the provision of, of King Cyrus and giving them the opportunity to repent of the sin of their idolatry and enabling them to make a start on this new temple with all that it was saying about what God was doing and was yet to do among his people, surely they'd be able to see that the, the shout of joy was the most appropriate for the occasion. You see, it is possible, and I perhaps speak to fellow elderly people, it's possible to dwell unhelpfully on the good old days, isn't it? And perhaps that's something that uh, older people are a bit vulnerable to. Of course, they can at the same time help us with a perspective, a sense of perspective and a sense of balance, which we need as well, the wisdom of that. But it's interesting that the prophet Zechariah, who's speaking into the same time frame as this, he says, do not despise the day of small things. Don't look down. Don't despise on the day of small things. Maybe the, the, the work of God in the past was more prominent, was more public, was more glorious. But don't despise what's going on now. And the prophet Haggai, he speaks very clearly about the greater glory of a temple yet to come, a temple that outshines Solomon's temple with all its glory. And God says, and this is through Haggai, he says, I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace. Now, if they'd heard that, Surely, that would dry up their tears, wouldn't it? That would stop their wailing. That would cause them all to join together in songs of praise. The glory that is to come is greater than anything in the past. And we Christians, and we Christians who are perhaps more seasoned Christians, need to see that and need to get hold of it and to remember it. The prophet Isaiah says, the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And it is being, it has been, and it is being, 
and it will be. Shout for joy then. Believer, shout for joy because Christ has come. Shout for joy if you've caught even the faintest, smallest glimpse of the glory of Christ. Shout for joy for a a complete and free and full salvation. Shout for joy because we are saved by grace through faith and it's not of ourselves, it is the gift of God. Shout for joy because Jesus is coming again and there will be a new heaven and a new earth and there will be righteousness in it and there will be no need then of a temple and God himself will be permanently, gloriously present with his people. And we always live, you see, with this tension between the now and the not yet and we're invited by God's word to have faith in the not yet that which is yet to come which God is going to do and which God is going to reveal and this second temple was a sign of it and of course the Lord Jesus would come to the temple and he would preach there and teach in its courts and he would overturn the money the the table of the money changers there And he would make himself known gloriously, and he has done. And we have reason to rejoice. If only everyone in this crowd could have seen this future glory, then they would all be shouting for joy. Now, I'm not saying there's not a place for lament. Lament over the sins of the past and and the discouragement of the present. And yet the matchless grace of God in, in meeting us in coming to us where we are, by sending Jesus to us, the Messiah, that surely should always be the dominant note of praise among the people of God, among Christians, the worship of the church. Christ has come. He has conquered the powers of sin and death and hell he is risen hallelujah he's alive today he's coming again shout for joy may our worship reflect this these great truths perhaps there's someone here this evening and you're not yet in all honesty you're not yet a real christian maybe you're still in love with the world more truthfully than you are in love with God. Or perhaps you're one of those who just has the outward appearance of godliness. You kind of mix with Christians. You mingle with them, but it's not real. You know it's not real to you, not yet. Well, verse 8 in our passage tells us that they, they made a beginning. They made a beginning on this work. It's a very hopeful phrase, isn't it? They made a beginning. Our passage speaks of repentance, you see, and restoration. And that new beginning did require effort on their part. Jesus made it clear that true repentance and faith and entering into the kingdom of God does require effort. Strive, he said. Strive to enter in. Make every effort to enter the kingdom of God. And if you're not yet a real Christian, I appeal to you tonight to to do this, to ask God to help you to repent and to believe 
and to come to Christ as he invites you to do, just as you are, and to make a beginning. Jesus said, you must be born again. You need to make a beginning on this great work of salvation, which God accomplishes in you. Don't be casual. Don't be fatalistic. Don't just say, well, if it happens, it happens. Don't be switched off. God's Holy Spirit is at work through his word and even through this book of Ezra calling you to make a a beginning and then to persevere in it, to continue in the great work of being on the side of the kingdom of God in this world, in the great work of building the kingdom of Jesus, the church of Jesus Christ. And if you're building his church, then you are definitely on the side of victory because he himself says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. There's no greater work to be involved in than the building of the church of Jesus. May God help us all to be humble builders in his kingdom. Amen.